Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I, I'm always excited, but I'm so excited today because we've got someone really, really, really awesome with us. And it's just the two of us today. Just the two of us. Anyway, I've got with uh, with me today is Spencer Jones, who is a senior lecturer at Wolverhampton in Armed Forces and War Studies. And for those of you who remember, he came and talked to us about the Boer War a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago. When was it, Spencer? I can't remember anymore. Well, it was before Christmas, so it's got to be at least three months ago. But it was memorable. That's the thing, Alina. It's memorable. Oh, memorable. So why are you here today, Spencer? What have you got? Anything exciting to tell us? I have. And actually, this is a, a really unusual story that probably I wouldn't be able to tell anywhere other than a podcast. It's it's a bit of a, a story to tell. And to understand this story, I need to just explain something that listeners might not be that familiar with. And that's as a military historian at universities. Occasionally, you actually get family members or people doing house clearances or people who have acquired papers in some way or another, you know, boot sales and so on, get in touch with us. And sometimes this can be family members who've got wartime papers who want them to go to a good home, but perhaps for whatever reason aren't comfortable submitting them to archives. Perhaps they've got you know, certain difficult elements in and so on. And they, they contact me. And over the years, I've, I've been really lucky to be um, entrusted with a number of private papers from soldiers from the Boer War, from the First World War, which I'm very honoured to do and, and take good care of. During lockdown, I actually had something a little bit unusual come across my, my desk. And this is somebody who's doing a house clearance. I'd uncovered a, a box of papers uh, from presumably a previous resident that were to do with the Second World War, which isn't really my um, published area of expertise at all. But they contacted me and asked if I'd be interested in taking them. And of course, I, I was. Um, having had a look at these papers, what's especially interesting about them is that whereas most of my papers are often the memoirs of officers or private soldiers in the British Army. This is actually uh, to do with an agent of the OSS, which, as of course we know, is the special services of the, uh, sec- the American military in the Second World War. Um, so that's pretty unusual. So the OSS, for those you don't know, by the way, it's Office of Strategic Services, which was essentially the, intelligent, the key intelligence agency of the US military at the time. And the, the, these papers actually belong to a soldier who was called, and you're going to have to excuse my pronunciation here because he has a Polish surname, although he's an American, uh, William Blaskowitz. And I, I've sent you the spelling of this name, um, Elena. Can you actually correct my pronunciation of it? Oh, I can't stop laughing. I'm really sorry. This is such an English thing to say. That's nothing against my English followers who are all amazing. Um, it's Blaskowicz. But Blaskovich. No, no, no. Blaskovich. Blaskovich. Yeah, perfect. Bang on. So that's repeat <laughs> that again. Go for it. Go for it. Blaskovich. Yeah, perfect. Well, there perfect. we go. My Polish pronunciation has gone up a level, uh, thanks to your careful tutelage. So Blaskovich, and forgive me, I'm probably going to slip into increasingly anglicised pronunciation as this goes on. So, so these basic details of, of this man were 
pretty interesting. He was born in Wisconsin in 1911. And he joined the U.S. military at the outbreak of the Second World War. And it ended up in the OSS. He was a big, powerfully built man. He was six foot three, according to his, his personnel papers. And not only are his, his, his personnel papers in this box, but crucially and most interestingly, and probably the reason we're here discussing this, he's also got account of um, an operation which he undertook in occupied Poland during the Second World War. Now, that's not my area of expertise at all. I'll be first to hold my hands up about that, as my pronunciation of Polish names has just shown. And so, listeners, this prompted me to get in touch with Alina, of course, is based in Poland, expert in Polish archives, to, to explore a little bit more about what this operation was, where in Poland it was taking place, and what was being undertaken. And that's what brought us onto this podcast here today. I'm really, really excited to do this because uh, I did. I, you guys saw I've been in the archives recently quite a lot. And this is where this is what I was actually doing. So um, kind of all hidden things. And I've been so excited to come and talk to, to all of you with Spencer about this because we uncovered like so much information, but there's so still so much more for us to be able to do. I mean, it kind of it really all kicks off with um, with. Well, they're being tortured at this point. They were captured and tortured, aren't they? Yeah, that's true. So the story that we can derive from this from this this paperwork is that I'm going to mispronounce his name again, I'm afraid, but Vaskovich ends up along with another unnamed agent. And he doesn't name the agent, which is is perfectly normal, I suspect, uh, possibly as you know, for security reasons. But he and his partner had gone into occupied Poland. Um, and at some point, it's not clear how, but they had been compromised. And the account that's been left behind is that they were taken prisoner and were, were subjected to some pretty uh, pretty severe treatment by the Germans. And this is, of course, something that is not very pleasant, but of course it goes on. And uh, you, of course, looked into this, Alina. So can you tell us a little bit about what they had to endure? Yeah, so these guys, very specifically, they were tortured more or less with electrical currents. He doesn't really talk about too much what about what he actually goes through. But I've got some examples here of what possibly could have happened so we're trying to piece these sort of the story together from little fragments but I'm going to give you a very prime example so if you go back to Warsaw during the occupied period you've got Alea Shuha um, number 25 it actually became the Gestapo headquarters and in the basement they had these cells and in the cells they had uh, these open cells and what they had they were kind of it's very difficult to explain um, like you know the pyres uh, in church where you kneel Okay, so people were forced to kind of sit in those kind of pyres, kneel and wait, and it was called a train. And up to about 100 people would be taken from Paviak prison and interrogated in the basement of these cells. It was, um, it's, it's, what I'm about to say, if, you're, if you have a very light stomach, I would suggest you switch off. But I would also suggest for people to go to the museum in Alea Shulcha. It's such a beautiful, I say beautiful, uh, it's such a well-made museum, but um, I think one of the most darkest things in this museum, and it actually, it shook me to my bones, is they have recordings of prisoners screaming while during torture, while basically being tortured. Um, and it kind of puts you into this position of what it would be like walking through the corridors of Alea Shoha. So I highly recommend people do go when you, if and when you go to Warsaw, do go to Warsaw. But anyway, so what kind of torture methods were there? I mean, some of these guys and even women, I'm not going to discriminate here because women were also severely tortured. Um, you had half of your face being beaten off with a revolver. Uh, lacking in your teeth, your wounds at this point were not being treated. I mean, there was a very, very 
small hospital and they barely treated anything so lots of infections and I, I can't imagine laying there having open wounds and then being infected and then being taken again to be interrogated and have those wounds completely and utterly opened up beaten it, it really does. It still it makes me sick to this point. These people were also forced into isolation cells, into dark cells. So, for example, they could be isolated for days, weeks, months. Um, you could also have the light switched on for maybe, let's say, five minutes, and then they'd switch it off for the rest of the night. So it's playing with your eyes. It's playing with your senses. People would have some sticks. They would be beaten with sticks. These sticks would end up breaking on people's backs and buttocks and legs, you would end up having so many broken bones. There was, uh, there was one gentleman who had a leg, and both arms broken, and he was actually deported to Auschwitz. So he arrived to a concentration camp with broken arms and a broken leg. These torture methods could last for weeks. They could be just tortured for maybe, let's say, and interrogated for one day. It could be continuous. It could be one, two, three, 10, 15, 20. Um, for those of you who know that I work on the first transport, the majority of the 725, 28, sorry, 20 men were actually tortured and interrogated themselves so a lot of them went through this kind of process um there we go i think that's the end of my uh, torture torture moment there but um yeah we're trying to put together all of these pieces and um finally Boskovich actually escapes doesn't he well he does and this is pretty amazing considering he's, he's clearly been given some pretty appalling treatments as you've just described and unfortunately from according to Baskovic excuse me can you remind me of my pronunciation Waskovic. Waskovic's account it's handwritten account in his papers according to this um, by this time his fellow agent had actually expired on, under torture but the exact details of how he managed to escape himself are, are a little bit vague apparently he, he was able to um, somehow disarm or overpower a guard, which is, is quite remarkable when we consider he'd been enduring some pretty severe torture. But let's not forget, he was a very well-built, strongly built, uh, strongly built man. He overpowered one of the guards, uh, was able to then escape from what we, we think, uh, I believe, the details are a little bit vague because we don't have a location for where this was exactly taking place. But it sounds like it might have been perhaps a temporary structure. So perhaps the guard detail wasn't as strong as you might expect. And in the process, he was able to um, break... You know, over, overpower a guard, um, possibly arm himself. It's Again, that's a little bit unclear. Possibly arm himself with uh, even perhaps a submachine gun, which would be pretty remarkable. Although it would have made, also made a terrible racket if he fired the thing and, and doubtly drawn a lot of guards. But the important thing is he was able to escape, but of course by now his, his fellow agents had, had perished. And straightly, we don't really have details about how this, this was really carried out other than in the handwritten notes, he notes that he was able to overpower a guard, arm himself, and then break out of the camp and we can only really speculate about what that must have involved, but break free, he nevertheless did. <clears throat> Do you know what? These are moments in history as a historian, as we all experience, where you go, I wish we had a time machine. We could go back and like fill in all of these gaps. We've got so many gaps and Spencer and I are working really hard to try and put all of this together to try and make out a really good story. Because this story is really, really interesting and really exciting. It, it absolutely is. And one of the things that, that's making it so difficult to research, uh, I've got no, po as you've already heard, listeners, I've got no Polish language skills whatsoever. I can't pronounce uh, anything to do with Polish. Um, but some of the Polish names that are actually listed in um, his account don't seem to correspond to, to sort of modern day locations. They might be the, the names that the Germans are using or so on. So it's difficult to trace this. And this is where Alina's work in the archive has been really, really important. And 
one of the things that we've been looking up is that after he escapes from prison, according to his own account, he, he then actually continues towards the location that he was originally going to head to. And that's really interesting because in his account, he says that his mission is actually involved. Uh, part of the, the duty is to stop the plundering of historical artifacts that is going on in Poland at this time uh, at the hands of the Nazis. Um, that seems like a, an interesting, perhaps a bit unusual mission to send to OSS agents to deal with in occupied Poland. But Alina, you've done a lot of work on the actual plundering of, of art in occupied Europe by the Nazis. And was this a common occurrence? Oh my God, it was it was such a common occurrence. I mean, literally the moment that the Germans invaded Poland on the 1st of September 1939, just in case people don't know the invasion date, because that's very important. Um, plundering just started instantly. People, everything, everything was being plundered from private properties to, um, for example, museums, art galleries and all sorts. But you've got to remember at this point in time, at this point in history, most of the men were away. Most of the men were fighting. They were either being captured, kept as prisoners of war. So a lot of the people left in the homes were elderly children, women. And they're not really going to say, oh, sorry, you can't come in, uh, you know, with our with our expensive artwork and jewellery and whatnot. You can't come in. But, you know, but it, it, it is such a frustrating time for these people because they cannot say no. You know, if you say no, goodbye. Concentration camp, or maybe not to this stage, but, you know, being arrested, um, executions and all because the occupation of Poland at this point is so utterly brutal it is not like for example in the first world war where it's man against man or soldier against soldier this is soldier against civilians for example mm-hmm. so these families have been taken by surprise by for example Wehrmacht, Gestapo, SS everybody was involved in just walking into someone's home and taking things so for example uh, second lieutenant Gerowski because he was a fighting at that point in October 1939. Um, his wife ended up having Gestapo walk into his property and they confiscated everything. When I mean everything, everything, the only thing they left was furniture. They ended up seizing a 50, you're going to cry when I tell you this, a 50 piece collection of Polish arms. Shocking. So we're talking about historical pieces that were used in various different uh, uprisings and wars. And even from the 17th and 16th century, he had helmets, he had armor, he had all of this amazing things and it was all taken. He even had some beautiful rare books that were confiscated. Porcelain was even confiscated and he had 20 royal autographs that were also gone. Bye bye. These guys were openly plundering Jewish residents. Everything is taken. So, for example, with Poles, they they would go in the night. It wouldn't be so obvious that they were plundering. But when it came down to Jewish properties, they didn't give a shit. It was, do you know what? You're lower on, on on the racial scale. We don't care. Thank you very much. We're having everything in your property. There was even a Polish Bible that was that was taken, uh, a Bible. I mean, I'm thinking, OK, but it was from 1577. It was written in 577. Um, it's worth about 15,000 pounds at the moment, this Bible. It was never recovered um, and it was incredibly rare. Things like paintings. So, for example, there's a painting by uh, Franciszek Xavere. God, I can never say that word myself. Uh, Lampi. He was um, he was a um my mind has gone completely blank to what he was. He was a Polish painter from the Romantic period. And mm. this painting was taken from uh, 18, done in the 18th, 19th century. So valuable. And it was taken. Um, they even went, listen to this, they even went into banks 
and raided the safes in the banks. So all the safety deposit boxes were raided. Thankfully, some of the people who ran the banks had their heads screwed on. And what they did was they removed all the valuables. So, for example, valuable jewellery or earrings or something. So all the aristocracy that ended up coming to the banks going, oh, my God, our money is gone. You know, everything is gone. They at least managed to have at least some of their valuables kept behind, which is quite fortunate. So then museums, art galleries, there were regulations. They passed regulations um, and there were cultural regulations where all artwork and objects of cultural value had to be reported. Otherwise, if you didn't, you would end up in prison. So sorry, you can't hide your um, half a million, let's say, for example, half a million pound painting. Um, you need to declare it and we're going to take it. So all your cultural references, say goodbye to them. That's, so we're talking about almost total looting of art, valuables, cultural artifacts. It's, it's a, a cultural plundering of, of Poland at this stage. Yeah, but it gets worse. I mean, when, for example, for the, um, ju- just after the Warsaw Uprising, so when everybody is evacuated out of the city um, in October, mid-late October, they come back and they plunder everything. When I mean they plunder everything, I mean a pair of underpants. They plunder as many things, because Warsaw at this point is burning to the ground. There are still hidden, you know, cellars and this and that. They go house by house, district by district, and strip everything, mattresses, food, everything goes. I don't know if people remember um, the film The Pianist. I don't, do you, did you ever watch The Pianist? I've watched The Pianist, yes. Yeah, so do you remember when uh, he goes into the house and he finds a, a, a can of peaches? Mm, mm. and he tries to open the can of peaches that would have been a rarity because at this point he is looking for food but there is no food there is nothing there's nothing for him to have so this is what Warsaw looked like very specifically it was completely stripped utterly bare and mm. probably they would have taken the rats if they could have mm, mm. so this, this is a, a, a yeah, an absolute plundering of Poland now of course the, the OSS agents are in Poland before the 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 uh, Warsaw Uprising. So it's 1943 they're there, but this is still going on in 1943. And according yeah. to the, the account in, in um, the paperwork, this is that it's the operation they're involved in is somehow involved with stopping uh, this activity taking place, which, as you say, was extremely widespread uh, in Poland in 19 uh, in, in the occupation. What's interesting about the breakout from prison? As you've already heard, there's, it's a bit vague about how he escapes, but escape he clearly does. And is why he continues uh, heading in the direction he was originally heading. And uh, the, according to the account, it's because he needs to make contact with Polish resistance in this area. Of course, otherwise he's got very little way of escaping from occupied Poland. He's, he's a long way away. This appears to have been part of the, the mission already. And the mission it, it takes him to, and this is again where an element of mystery has, has really come up because of the... Uh, the, the apparent nature of it we've heard about looting art treasures and so on particularly about looting arms armor and um you know artifacts to do with polish military heritage but his mission seems to take him towards an area that you've identified as an area of ruins in poland and this is of course where you know having a polish expert is so helpful so could you tell us a bit more about the ruins that the the um the blaskovich uh, again anglicized actually heads towards after his escape so he heads towards Aleksandrov, which is north of Krakow, a little bit f- slightly further. It's it's in, it's kind of an isolated area. There's no towns. Or, it's a very small village, a very tiny village, just completely out of the way. And it still is to this day. It is 
just completely isolated. I'm actually tempted to take a drive up there uh, once the restrictions go down in Poland. Unless uh, unless you want me to wait for you, Spencer, then we can go and check <laughs> it out be, together. Might be there a long time if we wait for that. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll do. I promise. I'll go down there and take a load of photographs because, I don't know, we're not quite sure what's actually left out there. So it would be really interesting to be able to document. Do you know what? If there are things left behind, we should definitely get an excavation going. <laughs> well, now, now we're talking. But it may be, in fact, that uh, it was excavation that had perhaps drawn the Germans to this area. Because just my own looking at uh, historical figures who are sort of associated with this um, brought me to brought to the attention uh, a German, or at least a sort of, I suppose you call him proto-Germanic, given the age in which he was there. This is in the 900s. Uh, and this is Heinrich uh, I, who sometimes called Henry the Fowler, in, in, uh, a man who's seen as the modern-day sort of king or founder, uh, so modern-day, so Dark Ages founder of uh, Germany, and in some ways the first king of the Holy Roman Empire. And it seems that this area um, may be associated with him. And of course, uh, whether he perhaps fought a battle there or held a court there or, or something similar. And Henry the Fowler or Heinrich, if you prefer, is a pivotal figure in German dynastic history. So he's very, very important to, um, to, to the foundation of a German kingdom. Warred against uh, the Slavs, the Magyars, and helped to establish uh, early German kingdoms. And as we know, the uh, interest in sort of deeper German history and the racial origins of German history was a really prominent feature of the Nazi party uh, and almost became a sort of pseudoscience or a pseudo-academic discipline, I believe, Alina. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Do you know what? We're going to talk about something that's made me think about an excavation site that one of my former lecturers was was at just before I uh, started university. God, I can't remember what year it was anymore. Um, but she was at Dora, which is in Syria. And they were current, they were excavating uh, this beautiful ancient town, and literally a few years ago they had drone footage or satellite footage, sorry, satellite footage taken of the area, and it was completely plundered. Mm. Everything was and it was badly excavated, and hopefully I will get her on the podcast to be able to talk about the site a little bit more because it's such an incredible site. But this is what it reminds me of, you know what the what the Germans were doing, um, going to archaeological sites and plundering. Literally, like what they were doing to, to to Polish cities and towns and villages and houses and and whatnot, but um, 
coming back to your point about uh, this whole idea with uh, with the Nazi archaeology and this ethnicity idea, um, the, the the really horror, and I don't mean this in a really bad way towards any of my archaeology friends, because you are all fantastic. You're all fantastic what you do, and you are not one of these types of people, because archaeology can be manipulated for certain reasons like politics, which is exactly what we're going to see now. It is being completely and utterly torn apart, twisted, thrown against the wall, and then molded into something that uh, that was used for propaganda purposes. So this idea actually goes back, funnily enough, to the mid 1800s. So it's not an idea that was created in the 20th century. The idea was um, was actually founded by. Wait for this, Spencer. Listen to this one. Two Frenchmen. Good lord. <laughs> two Frenchmen. Two Frenchmen came up with the idea for a superior Germanic race. Right. So how do we actually get to this point? So in 19th century France, the French nobles believed. So I, I have to laugh at this because it's just so utterly ridiculous. Uh, the, the French nobles believed they were descendants of German Aryans who defeated the Roman Empire and ruled over Gaul. Cue the laughter. <laughs> but it all came down to one man, one man, ladies and gentlemen, Gustav Cassina. He was a language expert who, wait for it, changed his uh, expertise to becoming a prehistorian. <laughs> so <laughs> talking to any of the amazing prehistorians we've spoken to, um, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. They work so hard and they're being manipulated here by a language expert. So he had a theory. His theory was that he would use material culture to define ethnic groups. Can you see where I'm going with this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so prehistoric Germans were, are you ready? A amazing, fantastic, superior race. And they conquered inferior races. And wherever they, they, they went, they left material culture in occupied territories. So therefore, wherever we would excavate and find Germanic sort of cultural material, therefore that was the superior Germanic race. He, funnily enough, this is something for you actually, uh, Treaty of Versailles. He got tried to get involved with the Treaty of Versailles. He tried to convince um, the panel, How I don't know which word, what word to use for this, the committee? Um, the, the negotiators probably yeah. at this stage. <laughs> yeah, negotiators uh, at, at Versailles that, wait for this, Polish land belonged to Germany. And why did it belong to Germany? Well, he even used Pliny because between the Odra and the Wisła, um, it was occupied by Germanic vandals in the Roman Empire. Therefore, that land belongs to Germany. And they left material culture everywhere. So I'm really sorry, my Polish friends, we have to give it up to Germany. So oh, idea, fascinating stuff he's he's absolutely insane this guy because his ideas actually become popular this is when they become popular they weren't very popular back then but they are now in 1933 mm. why because hitler comes to power and this is where everything kicks off it is now used as a propaganda tool lots of money is plowed into this and apparently um british archaeologists became jealous of the amount of money that the German archaeologists were getting to do their funding because they were being funded by the government. And these guys were going out and doing all sorts of really crazy shit. Um, They were trying to push national pride. You know, the Germanic race, we are the superior ones. The Aryans rise again. Um, So in the the end, it doesn't really matter what language a person spoke or where they lived because the German race 
could cross national borders. And this is what makes it really interesting because when you come down to something really difficult, like for example, um, the idea of identity in Silesia and Pomerania in Poland, which is still to this day, it is it's quite a really complex subject. And I'd love to do a podcast about this eventually, but um, it is, do they identify themselves as German? Do they identify themselves as Polish? Are they Polish German? Are they, where does this whole idea of ethnicity lie? Um, so question for you, Spencer, what do you identify yourself as? Well, a Midlander, I'm afraid. Uh, baggy. If those of you who follow football will know what that means. And uh, yeah, Midlander through and through and uh, common as muck, I'm afraid, is how I identify myself, Alina. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, no, to be honest, I, uh, growing up in England um, with a family, Polish heritage, I, I describe myself as Polish in general because I grew up with the language, I grew up with everything else. But in the end, I do still have certain British style mannerisms. So like standing in a queue, <laughs> not arguing with people or opening my big mouth and not being quiet and demure like uh, some people are. So there we go. <laughs> but there we, we've got the whole idea of Nazi archaeology. And it, this is just for me, it's just it's mind blowing and that it continues into 1942, 43. This mm. whole idea. So, so what we're seeing, I think, here is some links between, you know, cultural plundering of um, existing of occupied nations and so on, absolute plundering of their art and their material culture, while at the same time promoting this uh, pseudoscience, for want of a better word, of uh, which is, is rooted in um, some very dubious ideas, as you just clearly explained, this pseudoscience of, of um, a racial diaspora that can be traced back to Pliny the Elder and, and these types of characters. And so with the, the problem with the pseudoscience is it can be almost anything you want it to be. Uh, and nobody can gainsay you because those who create pseudoscience are immediately the experts in them. And when you combine that with lots and lots of money from the German government, keen to, or Nazi government, I should say, keen to promote this, there's a very dangerous combination there. I just find it so mind blowing that they managed to take archaeological facts, artifacts, sorry, and just twist them into you know, how do you know that an artifact is Germanic? I have no idea. How do I know that an artifact is Germanic? Well, I know. That's the whole point. How do you There's no trademark on the bottom, then. The funny, the funny thing is, though, um, apparently they started doing things in Poland. For example, they found artifacts with the swastika on it. Now, what if people don't know what the swastika is? The swastika originally is a Slavic symbol from like the ancient period. It, it's, it's such a... But it's the other way around. The, the swastika is one way around the... the the Polish symbols, the other. So in theory, they were finding swastikas on uh, artifacts and saying, oh, well, you know, it's Germanic and, and it's to do with the Nazi party. Well, was the Nazi party around 100,000 years ago? Really? Th that's where Nazism began? I mean, taking things and twisting it for me is just mind-blowing. I just don't understand it to a point. So we've got a really clear picture here of cultural um, plundering, uh, fascination with archaeology to try and prove a pseudoscientific point. And so I think what, and this was why it was so useful to talk to you about this, because from my perspective, relatively, I, I was dimly aware of this kind of thing, um, no real expertise in it. And so reading about it in uh, Blaskovich, again, I'm anglicizing, I'm not apologizing for that, reading about it in his <laughs> account, I, I was struggling to sort of understand why this was so important. Why, why would you, you know, commit... Uh, OSS agents to, to try and disrupt this activity. Um, but as you've explained, this is a huge part of, of the, the, the subjugation of Europe and also the promotion of, of Nazi 
racial theory. And you actually, um, you introduced me as well to an interesting idea, which again, I was dimly aware of, but you were able to expand on it. And that is Himmler, Heinrich Himmler, of course, his personal interest in, in sort of taking these uh, this, this racial, this very dubious pseudo-scientific racial theory and almost turning it into his own Dungeons and Dragons game, which was going to have a sort of a cult element um, attached to it as well. And, you know, we read about his attempts to try and refound the Knights of the Round Table and, and his interest in that sort of thing. And it's, it really is, it's, it's quite bizarre, isn't it? And, and almost impossible to believe, and, uh, but it, it is actually true. I mean, he was looking for the Holy Grail, wasn't he? If I'm not mistaken. Uh, he may well have been. I mean, uh, certainly Indiana Jones thought he might have been in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, a fine film that everybody should watch if they haven't done already. Oh, I just, I find Himmler so, do you know what? This is causing such a big problem amongst historians where we have to actually wade in and kind of separate the theories, the rumours and the actual history. It's kind of just smashed itself all together. And I just don't understand how we can I mean I, I do understand actually because we all do it ourselves anyway but for example I'm not going to name names but there was a, a theory made that um, Himmler chose a specific date for a specific event because he went to his astrologer and that and and this person actually went there and, and, and nitpicked how this possibly could have worked I'm thinking why would Himmler even give a shit about this event happening it was so minor and so insignificant and not even a blip on his radar. And we're going in so deep into this whole cult idea. I mean, yeah, okay. So the SS, I believe the SS was like a religion um, in itself. It was a cult with things like ritual symbols, sacred sites and, and things like that. But at the end of the day, are we really going in at this at such an angle to make it more than what it really is? I think we probably are. I think that that there's a, there's an appeal to it it seems weird and sometimes this reminds me a little bit of rudolf hess's flight to scotland oh, God, uh, yeah. mysterious <laughs> but yeah we know he consulted astrologers and he was fascinated with astrology and things and it's very easy to sort of extrapolate a person doing something because they were essentially a bit mentally unstable to all oh, there was a deeper meaning um also let's not forget that even in the 21st century um, astrology remains enormously popular uh, you know, to this day, and, and you know, we we only ha- we don't have to look too far in the internet to see that the prevalence of almost semi-mystical cults and strange groupings and strange ideas, which of course are, are, are with us to this day. So it's it's by no means beyond the bounds of possibility to go back to the 1940s and say, well, this stuff was around. Um, and I think that's what gives it this enduring fascination. It's it was there. The extent to which it was influential, I think we can debate, but its mere existence is so intriguing and it seems so anomalous. Um, that, that it's worthy of study. Um, and this, I, I think, perhaps might tangentially explain why the OSS are involved in this, but because the, the picture we have is there's uh, some sort of um, Nazi plundering, perhaps, uh, archaeological deal or activity going on at the ruins we've discussed. Uh, I know you and I, we discussed for quite a long time about w- w- why would OSS agents go there? You know, why is it so important? But if this was something that was perhaps being funded very heavily, um, or it got you know, the, the actual seal of approval from him or himself on it, suddenly it becomes a more significant, uh, a more significant event. And what we do know uh, from th- this, this frustratingly fragmented account, and it's one of those I, I wish I could, we, we could sort of, as you say, have a time machine and either go back and witness it or even just go back and interview Blaskovich because he's left us with a, a sort of maddeningly vague account, a handwritten account, fortunately good handwriting so we can read his writing, but 
light on detail um, that we could desperately need. But what we do know from this story is that Blaskovitz made it apparently to these ruins. So he's, just, he's already had a pretty remarkable uh, 24 hours here. He's made it to the ruins where originally he was intended to go. And this is where Hawley uh, notes is that the you know, mission was completed uh, in the um, in his notes. And that left me unbelievably frustrated. But fortunately, oh, God, Alina, yeah. you've got access to archives and, and Polish sources that I don't have. So you've done a lot of digging on this. Uh, it's real detective work. So can you give us some, some indication about what actually happened at these rooms? Do you know what? At the moment, I'm going through some more documents. But what I do have at the moment was there was a form of sabotage. That's as far as I've gotten because local residents have sort of reported that there were these explosions and gunfire and it was just absolute total chaos. And I think I need to do a little bit more digging into this because there is more behind this. There is more. We need to know more. We need to know more what he did because this is kind of where the evidence stops. And it's incredibly frustrating that oh and the archives here are now closing because of this i'm gonna say stupid virus and it's causing us to completely and utterly stop this research and um i'm just very angry at the moment but that's that's at the moment what we know it's it's again sorry listeners we wish we could give you the details but we wanted to give you a sighting on this because it's exciting it's this sort of history in action it's it's underway of course we're all hampered by the closure of archives so we've got this intriguing sort of series of accounts and we can only speculate that that perhaps he did link up with members of the polish resistance and certainly they seem to have uh, they, there's been some sort of incident here. And we know that Blaskovich himself must have survived. He doesn't give a detail about what happened and the mission was completed. He has no detail about actually how he then made it out of, of occupied Poland, which again gives it, you know, my, my suspicion is he must have had some linking with the, the resistance who've managed to somehow get him out perhaps via a neutral country or, or, or similar. Um, we also, I know you mentioned that there doesn't seem to be any record of the Germans ever going back to this location. So whatever happened here, it seems to have shut down any of their plundering in this particular region for good. So in that yeah. sense, uh, it, it sounds like a, a victory perhaps for the, for the resistance here. Well, this is why I'd like to go down to the site and be able to have a look to see what is left, because something could be left. We, do, we don't know unless, for example, I've not so far found any evidence that any Polish archaeologists have had access to this site yet. Um, very few people have accessed the documents I have. And the last time they ac- accessed these documents was like in the late 50s, early 60s. So I'm probably the most newest. I think newest would be the right way of saying it. Person who's managed to get to them. So I think that's something we do have to go and do and have a look and see if I can organise um, metal detecting as well in the area to see what mm. we could find out. Because there we could see if, for example, there were those explosions that were uh, reported by the local civilians, then we could see if there was any remnants of that or, for example, any gunfire so we could find any shell casings or anything of the sort, some material evidence to give us an idea of exactly what we're looking for and to be able to corroborate some of these experiences that we mm. that we do know about mm. so it's it's really it, this is a work in progress isn't it it's uh it's something that we're looking looking forward to working on more uh once the pandemic lets us out of our grip uh, let's out of our, its grip i should say exactly and ladies and gentlemen um hopefully by this time next year it will be a book so spencer and i are working on a book 
on this very subject. We are, and I don't want to say too much more about what the book's going to go on and, and say, because we wanted to give you a sighting of really where, how it started and, and what really got us interested. Of course, this is, you know, almost a Sherlockian mystery. We started with um, just a chance encounter with the, the box of paperwork, which I'm really grateful uh, was put in my possession. And it's given us the starting point. There's, there's still a lot that we want to work on about this, this operation. There's still question marks over. And please correct me on my pronunciation again, Alina, so I can get it right as we come to a conclusion. <laughs> I, I've anglicized it. Let's get it right to finish. Spencer, if we're going to be doing more talks like this, I'm going to have to embed this into your brain. I, what I'm going to do, I'm going to put a ringtone. So every time I ring you, it'll be Wazkowicz, Wazkowicz, Wazkowicz. So you'll get it into your mind to be able to pronounce it correctly. Wazkowicz. How's that sound? That's perfect. That's... I'll take that. So one of the mysteries that, that I've got from my end is that Wojciechowicz's papers are only about this operation. It's it, There's still lots about, well, what happened to him afterwards? Clearly he survived, he's, he's escaped. How did these papers actually end up in the house? Uh, you know, you'd be surprised at how often paperwork can end up hidden in lofts or sometimes military collectors end up with things that, that then get lost. But it's in my possession now. Um, I'm looking to expand on this. I'd like to go over to the States when international travel is possible and look into records over there and it really is going to be a sort of multinational history on both what happened um in the mission in poland and of course what he did uh for the, for the remainder of his life what, what ultimately became of him and it's something that one of those chance things sometimes as sun Tzu, the uh, the great military philosopher teaches us sometimes opportunities will multiply if they are seized and in this case a completely unexpected opportunity came up and because of you know, the opportunities we've had, we've been able to start an investigation, which I think is going to lead to a really interesting book. And we're looking forward to bringing you some updates on that as we progress. Amazing. Spencer, this has been so, I want to say so enlightful and so insightful, but um, it is because it's our research. So of course, it's absolutely fantastic. But um, thank you so much for joining me, being able to tell everyone about our amazing project and um, high five to us working more in the future on this. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Amazing. Thank you. April Fools! Well, if you fell for that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid you've just fallen for the plot of Return to Castle Wolfenstein, an absolutely superb first-person perspective shooter, one of my favourite games of all time. Uh, that came out in the early noughties. And, um, yep, the story of Agent Blaskovitz. 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 I'm afraid he's completely fictional. Um, you know, he was blowing up Nazi occult structures, fighting undead monsters and so on. It's zombies. a fabulous... Zombies. Don't forget the zombies. Zombies, super soldiers, all sorts of things. And um, I'm afraid none of what you've... Not, none of what you've heard as a, the actual story of him is true. But what is interesting is Alina's side of it is true and is uh, you know the study of um cultural appropriate not appropriation cultural plundering and so forth is absolutely true so we hope we've at least amused you in this podcast <laughs> thank you spencer for doing this for me it's been it's been so much fun thank you <laughs> <My> pleasure <laughs> selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. shopify.com slash work.